Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. Thank you so much. Yeah. Is it a good morning? It's a great morning. Uh, I'm going to do my best here uh, in the next few minutes to help us draw some inspiration from this book that Dion mentioned. Uh, as the first speaker in the series, uh, I thought I would mention a couple of introductory things. Uh, some background on this book that we're going to be looking at together. Uh, Ephesians is considered one of the four prison epistles. Jeff knows what they are. Does anybody else know what they are? Ephesians is one, and then letters written from prison in Rome. Hmm? There are crickets, <laughs> real live crickets. <clears throat> I mean, the worst could be you could be wrong. It's a New Testament book, so I mean, we're down to 26 now, I think. So Ephesians, Philippians, great, Colossians, and a little tiny one, Philemon. I think somebody said Philemon. Great. You passed the quiz. Now you can relax. Paul's authorship of Ephesians is sometimes challenged. Um, that's not unusual. I don't know why so many biblical scholars say, hmm, Paul says he wrote it, but did he really? I think what's more interesting than the question of did Paul write it is how does Ephesians fit within these other prison epistles? Many of our modern translations have a little footnote that says to Ephesians or to the saints in Ephesians might not have been in the original. And if you read chapter 1, verse 15, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, you could get the idea that Paul and his readers in this epistle have heard of one another, but may not uh, know one another. And along with that, like Romans ends with this whole chapter of personal readings to people in the church at Rome. And Ephesians doesn't seem to have that kind of a personal ending. And then there's this whole matter of the, of the similarity to Colossians. Like maybe as much as a third of Ephesians shares even language that's very similar. So, scholars have looked at this, commentators, and said, well, possibly what's going on here is that Ephesians is actually a reworking of Colossians, and it was intended that as the letter to the church in Colossae is carried through Asia Minor, that this letter would be read along the way. I don't know. Could be. I subscribe to the idea that Ephesians is in our Bible. So probably, you know, we should submit to it, learn from it, and hear it as the word of God. Radical, I know. But two other quick observations I'd like to make. Uh, in my opinion, these 14 verses that I've been assigned, and it's not a criticism of the, of the assignment, uh, I think it's too many verses to like fully exegete in 16 minutes or however many I, longer I hope to be here. Uh, so I'm just going to be trying to hit a few high points. Uh, I'm sorry if I disappoint you about your favorite phrase in, in the passage. I'd also like to point out that this passage is very Trinitarian, 
we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit mentioned, and very, are you ready for it? Christocentric. What in the world? Yes, it's very much centered around Christ. I counted, so it could be wrong, but I counted of Christ or of the Lord Jesus Christ or in him or through him or before him. I counted over 15 times a direct reference to something in relation to to Christ. So if we miss that, we probably haven't heard very well. Let me throw a fun word at you for verses 1 and 2. This is sometimes called the exordium. It's just the first couple of verses, but if you want a fancy way to describe it, you can say exordium. Can you say exordium? Most of you said that. Yeah. Here it is. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not like John the Baptist. This is the Lord, King of the universe, Jesus, the man who walked the earth, and Christ, the anointed Messiah. So we shouldn't hear this as his first, middle, and last name. We should hear this as three distinct references to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I note that Paul sees his apostleship as being by the will of God. So this will of God shows up at the very beginning And I think it's central to this passage. And Paul understands his apostleship not as something that that he uh, ascribed to or sought to achieve. He understands his apostleship as being according to the will of God. He talks a lot more about the will of God in this passage. But how cool is it that he understands my apostleship, my ministry, it's according to the will of God. It's part of God's master plan. It's not just something that's happening. This will of God, he talks about in verse 5, the purpose of God's will. The purpose there is this great word, eudokia, which means to think well. The you in there is like, you know, eulogy, a good word, and eudokia, a good thought here. So the purpose of God's will is is, is good things. Verse 9, the mystery of his will. It's a little more than we can really grasp, but he's going to try to reveal it to us. And then verse 11 talks about the counsel of God's will, which again is just kind of another way of saying God's plan. So this is really central. He wishes to, for the saints that they would experience grace and peace. Are you experiencing grace and peace? Would you like a little more? Matthew Henry says, no peace without grace and no peace nor grace except from God. And I like this. The best saints stand in need of fresh supplies of these graces. I'm not a best saint, but I receive grace and peace. The rest of this passage uh, I'm going to look at pretty much in terms of the acts of God. And I think I will read the rest of the verses, and then come back and comment on them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So as I said, hitting the high points, the acts of God here. He opens up saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done what for us? Blessed us. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So, blessed be God probably means blessed worthy is God, praise be to God, and the rest of this passage is pretty much saying why should God be blessed or why should God be praised because all these things are true about him, including the fact that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Would you agree with me that spiritual blessings are the best kinds of blessings? There are other blessings, but they tend not to be um, distributed evenly. Uh, some of us, um, you know, are healthier than others. Some of us have had better jobs. Some of us have just kind of had advantages, and some of us not. So. These things aren't distributed evenly. But Paul says that in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. This means every one of us present this morning, we've got the, we've got the full package. It's not unevenly distributed, folks. There's nobody here who's got, you know, special favor with God that you don't have, special abilities from God in terms of salvation and spiritual blessing. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Uh, in the heavenly places might suggest, yes, that there's more to come. It's not all fully realized here, but every spiritual blessing. So he blessed us. Verse 4 tells us, that he chose us, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Sometimes when we hear this language of chose before, predestination, all those things, we start feeling a little nervous. Like, what if he didn't pick me? What if I'm just trying to break in the door and he doesn't intend for me to be there? God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. 
I understand this passage to say that what we're supposed to understand from this is that God has chosen a people from before the foundations of the world. God eternally chose a people for himself in Christ. If you read the passage, we, us, he's talking about church again and again. Now, it's true, you can't have a church without individuals. Did you go that far? But the focus here doesn't seem to me to be corporate. Um, you know, we matter, you and I as individuals, we matter a great deal. But I, hate, I, I hope it's not upsetting to you. You're not the center of the universe. I mean, you matter, but <clears throat> we're talking about a people here that we get to be part of. We, us. And again, the stated purpose here is not primarily. God chose us. I'm, I'm suggesting to you not primarily so that he could save poor little us from the death and the judgment that our sins so richly deserve. Sometimes if you listen to Christians testify, you could get that idea. What salvation is, is a free pass. Like, I deserved hell, but I'm going to heaven. And man. Ah, this is true, by the way. But that really limits the purpose of God's election. God chose us in him as a church, as a people in Christ, before the foundation of the earth, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, and this choosing and this holy and blameless, Paul says, is for the praise of his glory. So God's doing something that includes saving us from our rightful deserts, but it's not limited to that. We need a, a larger vision. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoptions as sons, and again, through Jesus Christ. And I note that his predestination, again, is in hatred, yes? No, in love. In love, he predestined people. His elective will, then, is for us in Christ to gain full status as adopted sons through Jesus Christ. Not in any way apart from Christ. This is all through Christ. Now, I note that this adoption, this description of, of, of adoption is gendered. It says sons, and that can be a complex issue. I'm about to solve it for you. No, I'm not actually, sorry. But for the moment, let me suggest to you that if I, as a man, can feel privileged to belong to the church, which is described as the bride of Christ, then if you are a woman here this morning, please don't exclude yourself because of this issue from embracing your status as a full son of God. It's a description you belong. Verses 7 and 8. <laughs> he lavished grace upon us through Christ. This word lavish is a great word. It means overflowing, exceeding, abounding, 
uh, when, they, when they went through uh, after Jesus fed the multitudes and they picked up the leftovers. That was the lavish of the thing. It, you know, it wasn't needed. It was, it was excess. And it, it ranges from a little bit of excess to what uh, I'm describing here as excessive excess. Like, it's just more than you need. I hope it's not PTSD, but I've never forgotten the illustration of lavishness in terms of a St. Bernard's kiss. My brother had a St. Bernard during this time who drooled perpetually with a large mouth, and uh, when I thought about a kiss from this dog, I, you know, lavish anyway. So don't be traumatized. God isn't kissing us like a St. Bernard. But there's some comparison between the lavishness here, the excess. He lavished his grace on us. And what we achieve from that is redemption through the blood of Christ, his sacrificial atoning death. And we also get forgiveness of our trespasses. How? According to the riches of his grace. Lavishly, people. I don't know how you feel about your sins. I hope you, I hope you are sorry for them. I hope that you've repented of them. But if you're still trying to provide satisfaction for them, may I suggest stop it? You can't. And God has lavishly redeemed you, and he has lavishly forgiven all of your trespasses. This is not just a trickle. This is a tsunami, if you like. I'm so glad God has lavished his grace upon us. He is also, according to verses 9 and 10, made known and set forth in Christ his master plan. The mystery of his will. Max Turner says, in Ephesians, mystery means something too magnificent to be fully grasped. I like that. But he's really talking about the gospel of Christ. Jesus and his life and ministry is how God is setting forth his eternal plan. It's going to, uh, it's going to be brought about in the fullness of time. Time here being kairos, not chronos, not the, not the clock, but when the time is right. And this often refers to like the end of the age, when, when this world comes to an end and the new creation is here. And, and, and that plan, what is it? God is going to bring all things in heaven and earth under Christ. This is the same thing Philippians says in, in chapter 2, that Christ was, you know, was humbled and then God exalted him so that every knee in heaven and on earth, everywhere, Christ is going to be the head of everything. When we say Jesus is Lord and we believe it and we live like it, we get to join in this mystery that is God's eternal plan to bring everything under unity in Christ. We get to show the world this is what's coming. And it's beautiful. And so every other competing authority gets placed in its rightful perspective, which is you may have some authority, but like, you ain't it. Jesus is the one who is finally going to be the only authority. Paul says in another place, I think it's Paul, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
Verse 11 tells us that God works all things according to his will. The language here, I think, is meant to assure us that God's plan, he works all things according to his will. God's plan cannot be spoiled by fires, by hurricanes, by bombs, by governments, good or bad, by oppression, by depression. I got a little crazy recession or scary RBC assignments. God's plan cannot be spoiled by any of these things. Now, as appeals in the latter part of this letter make clear, Paul, uh, Paul's use of this language of predestination does not mean we don't have choice and responsibility. He appeals to us to make choices that are right. But we cannot and nothing can derail God's plan. This too is a mystery. How is this possible? But do we really want to do without this? Do we really want a God who isn't sovereign or people who aren't responsible? I think the Bible's right. And finally, he sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. When you believed in Christ, he says, that's when you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've spent time among cessationists. These are the people who don't believe the Holy Spirit gives uh, certain gifts today that are described in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, when I went to Cedarville and I applied, I had to specifically clarify that, you know, I would not try to exercise any of those, quote, charismatic gifts. Like, ooh, uh, yeah. And then a little later in my life, I attended the Brownsville Revival. And this was, a, this was a series of meetings featuring jerking and falling out and all manner of manifestations and sort of the mantra was, more Lord, like, knock me out again. Um, I think the New Testament teaching is clear that we receive the Holy Spirit, as it says here, when you hear and believe. Paul says in Romans, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. So my point here, my point here is if you are a believer... You have the Holy Spirit. You don't need to go find him somewhere where he's being distributed like, you know, like merchandise or something. Now, you might need to figure out how to relate to him. You might need to figure out how to listen to him so he can do the ministry described in the New Testament. He can witness with your spirit that God does, in fact, love you. He can teach you how to live like a son of God. He can guide you into all truth. So if you are not relating to the Holy Spirit, if you don't understand these ministries, understand you have been sealed with that promised Holy Spirit. Well, what about people? That, that God did all those things. What about people? I think it's interesting that there are no direct commands in this passage that I could discover. So I have a parenthetical note here that says, and this is probably not entirely fair, but it's a very un-Mennonite passage. Like, there's nothing we're supposed to do. Like, <laughs> what's this all about? Well, we, we're in here. It, us and we and our, it's all over the place. But we are intended to be certain things. For example, holy and blameless, which, by the way, is like Christ. We are to be to the praise of his glory. And it tells us that we have obtained an inheritance in verse 11. This inheritance, by the way, is God himself. This, this inheritance is that we get to have an eternal residence with God in history as redeemed, sanctified, glorified, adopted in the beloved sons. 
Now, I know there are places that talk about streets of gold and mansions, and some people think territories to govern. I don't know. If, that what, if that's what makes you desire heaven, probably you need to recalibrate. But this is really important, that we have an inheritance. We have a future that is part of God's eternal plan. And we have a role described in these last verses. It's the, the, it just kind of shows up a little bit. And it's in the past tense. Paul writes, when you heard, and what we heard was the gospel, which he says is the truth, or the truth which is the gospel. So the, the truth is the gospel. The gospel's true. When you heard the gospel, you believed. And when that happened, you were sealed. And the Holy Spirit is, is the down payment. All right, so, mm, already, I'm, time to go. So what? A couple of suggestions. We are not adrift in a random universe. The creator, Paul says, works all things in accordance with his will. This is not to say there's no choice in the world, but it is, again, to affirm that God's choices cannot be undone. Despite these present evil times, there are bad things that happen, sometimes to us. These things can cloud our vision, but not God's. He has an eternal plan from before the foundation of the world. We are not adrift in the universe. Being in Christ is the most important status we can have, and we share it with the rest of Christ's body. It's not just like us and God. Max Turner again, Ephesians challenges us, all of us, to find better ways of making our local churches real communities of people whose lives and worship together witness to that future cosmic unity in Christ. Being in Christ is our most important status. And finally, so what I say with the apostle, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.